I find my students are worse at communication now than they were 10 or 15 years ago, which worries me. And I think it's because they're so blinded they don't have a lot of good examples of effective communicators. They're drowning in short text messages and short Instagram posts that are not really good examples of how to successfully build relationships. So they don't know how. And again, it's not because they're dumb. It's just because they haven't had a lot of good conversations or good encounters in their life that they could imitate or build off of. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. What's up, guys? Today, I got to talk with Rob Danish. Rob has a PhD in communication and teaches a wide variety of communication topics at the University of Waterloo. He also has his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, which is also my alma mater, so I love that. He is the host of the Now We Are Talking podcast, and he's the author of four books, including What Effect Have I Had, which focuses on giving you a number of really powerful strategies to be better communicators. We talked about a lot of fascinating communication topics. He brought up how he's seeing a decline in communication skills among his students in today's world versus his previous students and the impacts that that can have on society. He's actually done a lot of work around the impact of communication and civility and rhetoric and dialogue in relation to democracy and and politics and power. So fascinating talk there. We talked about why he feels that communication is all about the effect that you have on others and what we can focus on to make sure that we're having the effect that we want. And we talked about what good communication looks like and where we should focus first to start to build the skills that we need to do it. So overall, I love this conversation because Rob shared a number of really impactful, helpful, actionable, and simple frameworks and strategies to help us get better at communicating with everyone in our lives. Rob, welcome to the Art of Communication podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's some really cool topics we can get into. One, you obviously do a lot of teaching just around how to communicate more effectively, so we want to dive into that. But I also think text of democracy and, and politics and, and power. So I think that those are really fascinating topics that are important you know, in today's time with everything that's going on. So I want to dive into that. But before we do any of that, I'd love to just get a feel like, like what brought you into the communication world in the first place? What drew you to it? And, and how did you end up down the path that you're currently down? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's funny, it's because a, a lot of my students ask me the same question, like three or four weeks into a semester, like, why did you end up doing this stuff? And my answer is always, I think that, I don't know what point in my life this occurred to me, but it occurred to me at some point early on that people make a lot of really bad decisions and people fail an awful lot at communication, even though it's the thing that we do all the time. It's like walking and breathing. We're constantly talking to other people, yet we fail at it a lot. And so for me, the study of communication emerges as a kind of study of why we do so badly at it and why we get so many things wrong so often. And that's true for me too. Like early in my life, 
you know, I would just think, oh, this decision is obvious. Like, why won't people listen to me? Like, we we'll just do X and they won't listen. And if they just listen, they would know. And uh, <laughs> I would get things wrong and fail to persuade other people, fail to, to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And it's not because other people are dumb or like they're not smart enough to understand. It's almost always because there's a communication breakdown someplace. And so I wanted to know why those communication breakdowns happen, why we get things wrong so often. So a lot of my teaching and research has been around how to improve communication practices so we can avoid those sorts of missteps. Do you think, just, I'm just curious in general, is communication getting better or worse? I think it's probably getting worse, although it's, yeah. I, I'm not sure how much worse. I think it's worse because people, I find my students are worse at communication now than they were 10 or 15 years ago, which worries me. And I think it's because they're so blinded. They don't have a lot of good examples of effective communicators. They're drowning in short text messages and short Instagram posts that are not really good examples of how to successfully build relationships. So they don't know how. And again, it's not because they're dumb. It's just because they haven't had a lot of good conversations or good encounters in their life that they could imitate or build off of. That's really interesting. It's almost like we need to get some training to them in like high school, middle school years around, you know, communication strategies that are really effective. I wish. Like, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear at this point that social media is an isolating factor for many people. Like people experience great higher degrees of isolation and anxiety because of their participation on social media. And good communication is about like forging connections and making relationships. And we know that social media is not conducive to making healthy, positive, constructive relationships. So if they get some kind of critical awareness of that, and then some of the skills to start to build relationships outside of those realms, I think that would be beneficial early on, but they don't. For sure. I'm I'm curious of your thoughts, and this will bridge us to kind of the first topic I want to dive into, but the impacts of the fact that you're seeing, uh, you know, the youth become worse at communicating. What are the impacts of that to our democracy, our government, our future? When you've done a lot of work around kind of the importance of civility and rhetoric to democracy, and and I'll just leave it open there and see what your thoughts are. I mean, this is a great question, and it's kind of the question that motivates my work. I do think if we expand out from your, your last question to kind of political culture, what we're seeing is kind of grand scale failure at communication. So you have um, opposing political viewpoints, which is fine, but those now opposing political viewpoints are kind of incapable of talking to one another, mm-hmm. of constructively or, or in a kind of mediated fashion, finding some kind of common ground and advancing together, even in the face of difference. We're sort of like politically incapable of that right now. And my work on civility is sort of the argument that, look, we have to think about, in a democracy, having constructive relationships with people we disagree with. But we can't have a democracy without those things. So we have to figure out how to communicate in such a fashion that you don't give up your beliefs, like you can still hold on to them, but you can form a relationship with someone that's different than you and that might oppose your positions. And that relationship can still be constructive. It doesn't need to be hostile. It doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be resentful or characterized by resentment. So I think this, my students are, younger folks, I think, are, are more inclined to want to do that, want to engage in those projects, but are unaware of kind of what's required or what kind of communication practices would help them do that. Mm-hmm. 
the older folks, when I give talks, public talks, and there's like a lot of older people in the, the audience, they don't even want to, they feel like, I think, resigned to the difference being unbridgeable. And they would rather just like wash their hands of the whole thing, which is very, it's even more dangerous. Yeah, that's interesting to hear the different reactions, I guess, to the the different maturities of audience. You mentioned kind of the student, your students are open to understanding what it takes to do it well. So what does it take to do it well? Like if me and you have opposing viewpoints, how, what do I need to do in my own approach to it to make sure that I'm I'm being open to a dialogue and not yeah. a fight? Yeah, this, this is sort of, this is a great question too. And it's one I think an awful lot about so the first thing I try to tell anybody, like student, older person, doesn't matter, anybody about communication, is that you have to remember one thing you don't want to do is assume that all you're doing is transmitting information from me to you. So if I believe in some t- policy and I know you disagree with it, if I think that my only job is to give you information about my beliefs, like tell you the arguments that and there are the reasons why I believe the thing that I believe that I'm misunderstanding our interaction. So you can't do that. Like, stop. So this amounts to me telling us to stop trying to push your ideas on someone else. So in communication, we have what are called push tactics of persuasion. And there, when you just give your reasons and the information supporting your position and assume the other person is going to adopt them. Well, if you think about what happens when you really push someone, they either fall backwards or they kind of stiffen up and get ready to fight. Like, it's an antagonistic situation. So instead of push tactics of persuasion, we need what I call pull tactics of persuasion. And pull tactics are um, more about kind of active listening, so reflectively seeking to understand what another person's position is, asking another person questions to draw them out and into conversation. So those questions kind of get at why, what the values are someone holds that might orient their policy or their politics. Uh, it also involves story more than argument. So you want to learn about what another person's story is, like who they are, and you want to share your story with them so they know who you are. So if we use active listening, if we use what I call humble inquiry, if we use story, those are the kinds of modes of building relationships and building connections that once that's in place, you can get to a policy disagreement or policy argument, and that policy argument might feel different if you have an existing relationship. So my mantra to my students is first you connect, then you try and convince. If there's no connection, there's no persuasion. So you have to look for the communication mechanisms of connection first. And oftentimes we just get it backwards. We try and convince someone without having connected to them. And that just alienates them or makes them more resentful. I love that. I wonder though, does it make sense to have your focus be convincing. Even when you say connect and convince, like the end goal is convincing. Should it be connect and understand and then see where we go from there? Yeah, I, I, that's probably more right. Like, I think what I want them to see is that if they prioritize the, the desire, their interest in connection, it might change what they think of as persuasion or what they think of as mm-hmm. an end goal. Because if you do end up forming a relationship with someone that doesn't isn't like you, that doesn't think the things that you think, it might reshape what it is that you think. And so the purpose, what you're persuading them of, is likely to not be the same thing after you've connected with them. So if you attempt connection first before persuasion, then persuasion itself is less instrumental. It's less like get you to vote for policy X or, or Y. 
and more of a shifting or moving target. It's interesting. I know that I found you had a really interesting take on just the purpose of communication in general. Yeah. So I'd love for you to share a bit of your thinking around that. Yeah. So I, I and this, this is not just my perspective. It's lots of scholars in communication like to make a distinction between what I was just calling a minute ago is called the transmission model of communication. So when I think about the purpose of communication as me giving you information. So here, this is where I'm from. This is my birthday. I like cheese. You, you know, here's some information about me. That's really a kind of misunderstanding of the complexity of human interaction. If I think of communication as transmission, I'm actually thinking of it as the action that computers and, and cell phones do. Like right now, our computers are sending signals to one another over a channel. And those signals are full of information. And it's great. It's like a revolution in the 20th and 21st century that we have these technologies of transmission that are so good at what they do. But that's not the human task of communication. That's not what humans do when they communicate. So instead of transmission, there's a couple other ways of talking about it. But I like to say, instead of asking, did you get my message? You should ask, what effect have I had? Mm-hmm. So communication is actually a process of producing effects on other people. And we use our language to produce those effects. We also use our bodies. We use nonverbal communication. All of those signal, all those messages produce effects on other people. And now here's the really important point. Meaning, like what a sentence means, is an outcome of those effects. So I also tell my students the purpose of communication is to make meaning. And you make meaning by producing effects on other people. Meaning isn't a thing in my head that's transmitted to your head. It's an outcome of our interaction. And our interaction is characterized by us producing effects on one another. And you know that's kind of a philosophical point. But once you get it, you start to think, well, how do I produce the effects that I want? Like, mm-hmm. what kinds of effects am I producing? Once the students are asking that question, then they're in a much better place to get better at communication. Interesting. I'm curious how that also flips our thinking on what impact the other person has on them. Yeah. So that's funny that I'm, I was just working on uh, my own podcast episode on what's what I call uh, the neutral inner voice. So our own, what's called intrapersonal communication, the way we talk to ourselves actually affects us. So they did this study with uh, these little kids, I think they were eight or nine years old in Little League, and they were about to get up the bat. And they took one group and said, okay, before you get up the bat, just think about whatever you want to think about. And the other group of kids, they told them to tell themselves they're going to get a hit. You know, I'll say, I'm really good at baseball. I'm going to get a hit when I get up there. And what happened, the group that told themselves they were going to get a hit outperformed the group that didn't, they didn't give any instructions to. That's because their intrapersonal communication had effects on them, like the way they chose to talk to themselves had effects on them. And so when I get my students who tell themselves, oh, I'm really, really stressed, I can't handle this. And I'm like, okay, stop for a second. You just told yourself a message. And that message didn't give yourself information. It produced an effect on you. And if you said that to yourself, like, what's the effect going to be? And it's not good. It's not a constructive effect. So if you can master what's called the neutral inner voice, where you're not judgmental about yourself, where you keep things in perspective, people with a neutral inner voice are better leaders. They, they can accomplish more, et cetera, because they're positioning themselves more effectively in communication circumstances. So intrapersonal communication is one of the things I find most fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, it's much easier said than done controlling that inner voice, but it, oh, it's, it's so so impactful on how you communicate with others, both on what you kind of give to them, but also how you perceive what they say to you. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. So it affects how you hear others and the effects others have on you also. If someone offers a mild criticism, it's like, well, Greg, you know, that episode was just okay. And you think to yourself, oh, this person hates my episode of my podcast. Well, they didn't say they hated it, but you mm-hmm. heard they hated it. So your, your inner voice has reinterpreted the message to cause you more anxiety. And that's a, a problem for a communicative interaction. And it's one of the reasons why we fail so often at communication. It's not just the person doing the talking that's failing. It's also the person doing the listening that can distort the, the message and create a different kind of effect. Yeah, if you think about that, maybe I get angry, right? And I respond in a mean, curt way to you. And you're like, I was just giving them feedback on the episode. What's up with that? So you respond in a way, right? And now it's so easy for interactions to get off track that way. Exactly. Yeah. So w- there's this thing called switch tracking in interpersonal communication. And that, that was what you just described as a form of switch tracking, where one person is like, you know, I'd really like to get Italian for dinner tonight. And your response was, nah, I don't really want Italian. I'd rather have sushi. And their response is, well, why are you always judging me or crit- criticizing my interest in food? And you switch tracks. You're on a totally different track now. And you might think, well, what? I didn't criticize. And then you say back, I didn't criticize you. And now you're in a, an argument on a totally different track, not about what you're having for dinner, but about who's accusing who of, of what, and you have tension, et cetera. And that is a huge problem in interpersonal interactions. And what I don't think we recognize is going on in our own head, right? It's, it's fascinating. So with all that, I guess, what does good communication look like? Yeah, so I think that that's a good question. I think that good communication, and I want to think about this individually for a second. So if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm an individual and I think I want to be a better communicator, what do I need to do? I think the first thing you need to do is start to reflect on the effects you have on others. So start to notice how others react to your sentences or your nonverbal posture, et cetera. Are they reacting in positive ways or negative ways? Because for me, the first rule of good communication is it engages people's positive physiological responses more often than their negative ones. So whatever I say, is it making people happy, interested, excited, feeling confident, or is it making them sad, angry, resentful, et cetera? So what is the emotional effect here? If more often than not, you're producing positive emotional effects, that's a really good sign that that you're a good communicator. And that comes before, so that's the first thing. That comes before the the second thing is you want to be clear and specific if you want to affect someone rationally, if you want to engage in a kind of rational conversation. So if you're producing good positive effects on, on others, then the second step is to make sure that you demonstrate your care for them by being as clear as you can about your needs and your interests and your commitments and your reasons. So, and, th- and that involves being transparent also, being clear. So I think, Greg, you should do an episode on X because it would help your listeners do Y and Z. So if I've made you feel good, if you're, we have a positive emotional interaction, and then I'm clear and transparent with you, that's going to be good communication. So those are the two. We call that in class balancing kind of relational communication practices with functional communication practices. They have to stay in harmony for you to be a good communicator. You have to be meeting someone's emotional needs and being clear about goals and and interests and reasons, et cetera. Interesting. And 
I think the first part, right, you have to do more than just listen to their words, especially if you're like a leader or manager, right? If I say, hey, do this project and they're like, sure, right? But, the, you know, the body language is like, uh, whatever, you know, and they yeah. don't really want to do the project. You got to pay attention to the whole picture. Yeah, that can be really... So some of my most frustrating students are the students who think that I tell them the first thing and they're like, yeah, I know I have good effects on everyone around me. It's no problem. It's going great. And you watch them interact and you're like, no, no, that's not it at all. <laughs> so they're like deeply misreading the effects they're producing on others, it can be much harder to get them to see those effects. So we have a kind of a checklist that we can go through for them to get better at reading the effects they're producing. Some of that checklist is as simple as, do people's spines move away from you when you talk to them or toward you? Hmm. Like moving away is a sign I'm not interested or I'm, I'm upset or I'm, I, don't, I wanna get away from you. Moving in is like, oh, you're, they're engaged. They're, they wanna know more, et cetera. Or, you know, are, are they constantly looking down or the fidgeting, you know, because are, are you causing them anxiety or touching themselves or do they feel relaxed and confident and are they looking up, et cetera. So we can break it down to if the student's really bad at like recognizing this, <laughs> some things to look out for, but those are tough cases. And this is the problem with communication is that because all of us do it all the time, we all think we're good at it, mm-hmm. but that's why we fail. We, we, we overestimate our own ability at it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love if you could share that checklist. That would be great to see if it's something sure. that you're able to share. Just, uh, you know, share in the, in the show notes and that kind of thing. So that's kind of good communication from an M communicating to you perspective. What is good communication as far as me listening and understanding you and where you're coming from? Yeah. There's a couple of key components of good listening. One is, is called reflection. And reflective listening is one of the most powerful communication tools that we have. It's useful in everything from politics to interpersonal communication. And reflective listening is just when you are, so you, someone says something to you, you identify what you think is the most salient or important feature of what they said, and you rephrase and reflect it back to them. So Greg, you want to know more about listening. (laughs) That would be reflectively listening back to what what you said, because it seems like, Greg, you think listening is a really important component of, of communication. Reflection opens a space. Well, first of all, reflection lets the other person feel understood and heard. So if you reflect back what they said, they think, oh, this person heard me. And the second thing it does is it opens up a space for someone to say more about something that matters to them. So they feel like they've been invited to say a little bit more about what matters to them. So if you are a reflective listener, that's a really, really great sign that People are going to think that you understand them and, and feel comfortable around you, et cetera. The next step on that, uh, of that kind of process, is to then anticipate the components of what someone has said before they've even said it. So you have to start to put in language some of the context or the other ideas that are bouncing around someone's head for them. So if someone says to me, like, I really just dislike so-and-so at work. Like, Jim's being a real problem at work. You know, I hate going there now. And then you say, well, it seems like Jim's a problem for you don't like working with Jim very much. Is that also causing you to feel upset when you're at home? Or is it affecting your life in other ways? And then, yeah, you know, I was just thinking, like, I, it was affecting my life in all these other ways. I can't sleep at night. So you kind of put the context in for the person you're trying to sort of fill in the gaps and that's like reflective listening on steroids almost it's like really advanced reflective listening 
And it's a, it's very powerful when you're able to do that. It demonstrates a deep understanding of the other person's position. Uh, here's always been a challenge for me, and I think a lot of people, right? We've talked about two different things to do, right? How am I communicating effectively with you? All the things I need to do that well and get you to feel what I want you to feel. But then at the same time, how can I listen actively and reflexively and like make myself an open book to see what you're telling me? It's hard to do both of those things simultaneously. Any tips on getting good at that? Other than yeah, practice? <laughs> the, my students always tell me this feels really awkward. Like we, we do this uh, reflective listening little sort of practice exercise in class. And they're like, oh, this feels so awkward. And then I can't think about what I want to be saying. Like it doesn't feel natural to them. And the one thing I tell them is, look, the if I ask you to walk funny, like, you know, in circles or something, you'd be like, this doesn't feel right. Like, because you've been walking your whole life in a certain way. And you've been listening your whole life in a certain way. And if it hasn't been reflective, then you're not going to be used to it. So the practice, 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 as with all things in communication, is the, the mantra I offer my students. Once you're good at reflective listening, it becomes easier to balance the tasks of reflecting and then also thinking about how you want to say something. But you need to recall that the reflection is itself producing an effect, right? So... I'm listening deeply to you, reflecting back what you're saying, filling in some of that context. That's making you feel more and more comfortable and making me trust me more, et cetera. I don't need to be in a rush to state what I need to, to state. Like I can slow down and let the effects of the activism accumulate. And then later in the conversation, be like, yeah, you know, I've listened to you talk about how frustrated you are at work. I feel the same way sometimes, you know, I'm, I don't like so-and-so who I work with and uh, I can't sleep at night often. The person's going to be much more attuned to you at that point also, if you've done active listening first. So uh, my message to my students is often practice reflective listening first, get good at it, in conversation, allow it to create space. And then after you've done it some, think about how you want to say it, what you want to say, how are you going to affect this other person? Because you'll be in a different space. Mm, I think that's great advice. So start with the listening piece, get good at that, and then build the space to do everything else. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, you mentioned there sharing, a, like just in your example, right? So sharing a little bit, oh, I get frustrated at work sometimes. Earlier, you mentioned story. I'm curious of your thoughts on the impact of both story and kind of personal vulnerability within communication. Yeah. Oh, this is a, yeah, something we haven't had a chance to talk about, which is a really important kind of aspect of effective communication. So, there's a lot has been written about what's called authenticity and authenticity in communication is when, so I have an experience of the world and then I have my own inner awareness of that experience. And then I can communicate that awareness. So authenticity happens when experience, awareness, and communication are all lined up. They're all working together. But oftentimes I may be sitting in, in a seminar room or something and I might be bored out of my head. So I, I'm sitting there. I know I'm feeling bored. I know I'm feeling bored. And someone asked me how I'm doing. I'm like, oh, I'm doing great. This is really interesting. So communication not lined up with awareness, right? But it turns out that what we know in communication studies is that authenticity begets authenticity. So if you line up your experience, awareness, and communication for someone else, that other person is likely to respond in authentic ways too. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, if you misalign them, they're more likely to respond in a misaligned way. So if, you, if you're bored, frustrated, and you're like, oh, I'm having a great time, the other person might be bored and frustrated too. And they're being like, yeah, I'm having a great time too. And then you don't know anything about what they're really experiencing. Mm -hmm. 
the problem is that some sometimes we can put our experience and awareness in too harsh a communicative pattern, which can create tension and resentment. So if the speaker asks me, how are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm bored out of my mind. This is terrible. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's, that's too harsh. It's authentic, but it's too harsh. It can be alienating. So I think story works best when it allows us to authentically represent our experience and our awareness in a more indirect way that's likely to elicit further authenticity from someone else. So story is really useful in interpersonal relationships for kind of uh, creating that authentic reciprocation instead of just like blunt, no, I feel like this is boring, you're boring me. So it works to produce that kind of authenticity cycle. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I've often found that kind of vulnerability is uh, like rocket fuel for connection, right? Yeah. Once you uh, once you start sharing in an appropriate way, right? Like you don't just start loading all your problems on a stranger, but uh, when you share in appropriate ways and appropriate environments, they open up, you open up, and it just it starts to build that personal connection. But it's more than that. Than, I think story is an important component of that because vulnerability isn't just about like stating a feeling or mm-hmm. an interest. It's not or a fact. It's not like stating, well, I was physically punished when I was a kid by my parents. Okay, that's a fact, and I'm sharing it with you. It might be true, but that doesn't kind of open up that authentic reciprocation. You have to put that in a story so that someone can understand it, understand its context, its meaning for you, and then people will begin to reciprocate. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think it's uh, the way I've always thought about it is like, so you would tell your story, but maybe you go one layer deeper and share, well, and this is how I felt about that, right? Or I was really, really scared that this client was going to kick me out, right? And we were going to lose them. And you just add those little, that little bit of color into what was going on with you emotionally on, on top of the, you know, the basic story that you would tell them either way. Yeah. So in small group communication, uh, and this is relevant for, for politics too, but in small group communication, you want to use what's called related self-disclosure and related self-disclosure is when you tell a story about yourself, but add the additional element of connecting it up with whatever the group is experiencing or dealing with at the time. So unrelated self-disclosure is, is when you arrive to a group meeting and you're like, oh, the bus driver was such a jerk to me. Like he closed the door right when I was running for the bus, so I missed it. I mean, nobody cares. It's not related to the, the group's work. A related self-disclosure is when you tell a story about some disappointment or some frustration you had or some vulnerable moment in your in your life because it matters to how the group is functioning right just then or it matters to the decision that the group is about to make. And people think, oh, that story impacts us in, in this way. And then they're more likely to share a story about that. In fact, also they're more likely to be affected or changed in their group of behavior, the group dynamics by that story. So what you're describing is what I call related self-disclosure. It's this ability to then take your story and connect it up with some larger context or theme or value or, or thing going on with a group of people. Very cool. Yeah, I love that to put a kind of a framework around that. I think the more frameworks we can learn, the just the more effective we can be at learning some of these concepts. And, and obviously, you have uh, um, you bring a lot of background. And, and understanding of those kinds of frameworks. So I'm loving this conversation because it's given me a lot of frameworks to think about things in. Yeah, and related self-disclosure is hard, by the way. Like just <laughs> telling someone what you like or what happened to you in a fact way, it's super easy. You can just, you know, I don't like salami sandwiches because one day when I was seven, my mom ate me, made me eat one and I burned my mouth. It's like, okay. <laughs> but related self-disclosure is like you have to tell something meaningful about yourself 
that connects up with other people. And that's hard. That's like masterful communication. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you know you're going to have a conversation about X, like you're leading a conversation with a group of people about this, there can be some preparation involved, but much harder to come up with the appropriate story on the spot if you're not expecting that topic to come up. Yeah. Well, good public speakers are masters at using story, just like you just described. So they go into it, they're addressing 500 people that work for some company and the company makes widgets or whatever. They figure out a story that they can disclose about themselves that they can connect up with widgets or like microchips or, or whatever it is that that's happening. That's when you know you have a really good public speaker on your hands. It's related self-disclosure and people are engaged with it. Yeah, for sure. Well, this is super cool stuff. I appreciate it. Just a couple more questions I have that I like to ask everybody who I have on the show. Okay. So the first one is just around the power of conversations. I'm a big believer. You probably are as well based on on your line of work, but that just one conversation can have a really big impact on, on your life and the direction that you take. So I always like to ask my guests if there's one meaningful conversation that you can point to that had a big impact on your life that you'd be willing to share. Yeah, there's one that uh, comes to m- immediately to mind. So uh, it was about eight or nine years ago, I was younger and I was in a meeting in my workplace and the meeting was quite tense. It wasn't really going that great. And I got a little upset and and I was I was like, no, no, not like, so I, I wasn't yelling, but I was upset about something. And the meeting was over, a person running the meeting came to have a conversation with me and I'll, it's stuck in my mind forever. And she was like, well, Rob, you know, when you said that thing in the meeting, what did you get out of that? And, and I was like, well, I was trying to set the record straight. You know, that was a fact that I was saying people were misrepresenting things and they weren't true. And I was trying to make sure everyone knew what was true and false. And she's like, no, Rob, you're not listening to me. I'm asking you what you got out of that, that, you know, did it help the meeting? Did it lead to a constructive end? And I was like, oh, I made myself feel better. (laughs) I felt better after I expressed my feelings about it. And she's like, okay, so you made yourself feel better. Is that all you can get out of a conversation? And I was like, oh, well, definitely not. (laughs) Like, Like most conversations shouldn't be about me feeling better. So that kind of, what did you get out of that question really stuck with me and really oriented my professionally, my kind of performance or my participation in meetings after that. I would just think to myself, okay, I'm going to say this, but what am I going to get out of it if I say it? Am I going to get something constructive out of it, or I'm just saying this to make myself feel better? And that that I become I became much better at my job after that conversation. It was very helpful. Yeah, I, I love that. I remember a recent conversation I had with my son. Right, he was mad at his coach, and he's like, "I'm just going to quit because you know he won't get my services." And I'm like, uh, "How's that going to serve you though?" Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, I I just will. He won't get my services." I'm like, "I don't know about that. You know, think about." Like, like, what does this do for you? And obviously he didn't quit or anything like that. But yeah, it's definitely important to think about, well, how does this serve me? Because it's really easy to just react in the moment, especially when emotions are involved. Yeah, yeah. I used to be much more reactive when I was younger. So that conversation helped me kind of slow down and be a little less reactive. Yeah, for sure. So second question, all you've accomplished so far, if there's one communication skill that you could have had in more abundance that would have made it a lot easier for you, what would that have been? I think the the skill of using questions or asking questions instead of making statements to orient and frame conversations that lead in the direction you want. I mean, mean, that might seem a little bit manipulative, but it's not. (laughs) It's just, I've seen people that don't sit down and just say, well, I want to do X. We're going to do X. Instead of doing that, they ask a series of questions and everyone ends up doing X. 
I wish I could do that. Sometimes I can, but it's, if I find it really, really hard to ask the right questions to move people in certain directions. So whenever I see someone in a leadership position who's able to do that, I'm very, very impressed. And I think I want to do, I want to be able to do that. So that capacity to ask questions and have questions lead people is, I think, just one of the most kind of, or the best indicators of mastery of communication that I wish I had. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, um, it's one big component of communication we obviously didn't get into was kind of the question asking side of things, something else I'm very fascinated in, maybe another interview down the road. Yeah, well, you were doing it with your son, right? Like I try to do that with my kids, and I know I was like, "As good as if my kid wants to quit something, I'm like, no, you're not quitting. <laughs> you're going to practice tomorrow." And <laughs> my kid's a little older. Though. You were trying to, yeah, you were trying to think of how do I ask him something so it gets him thinking that I that he still wants to do this, and that's the right instinct, I think. Like I, I think that shows a real command of, of communication, and it's not always my instinct. So I just wish I had it more. Yeah, when he was younger, be you, you know you don't quit things. You're not quitting, but now he's a little bit older, a little bit more emotional. So it, it, it's a different conversation, which is which is funny. So last question: Who's the best communicator that you know? And they could be alive or dead. You could know them or just know of them. But who would you put up there at the top? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to say the person's name because it's uh, someone I worked with a long time. But the, uh, there's someone I've worked with for a long time who's in you know, senior leadership positions in universities here in Canada has held several different senior leadership positions at universities. And, and I think that one of the things that makes her such a good communicator is that she's so honest and forthright and straightforward while at the same time being warm and kind and well-liked. She's kind of, kind of mastered the balance. So she can criticize you, but you don't feel defensive when you get when she criticizes you. You feel welcomed or supportive, even though it's a critical thing. And it's a kind of magic trick to balance that that warmth and directness. And she has that magical balance of, of those two. Like you know exactly what she thinks. She's super confident in saying what she thinks, but um, not in a kind of hostile, aggressive fashion. So in many ways, she's been my model for trying to develop my own communication practices and achieve that kind of that kind of balance. Yeah, it's something I struggled with as a parent and earlier in my leadership career as well. Just seeing something that maybe I know is an in, is an area of weakness that we need to develop. Say with somebody who reports to me, that's frustrating me, but I'm I want them to feel good, so I'm giving them positive feedback. I might say, "Hey, we need to like look at this," but then it like overflows because I didn't address it. And now I respond in an overly emotional, almost angry kind of way. And then the relationship's ruined, right? And nothing yeah. good happened out of it. And yeah. finding that right balance, being confident enough to address it early and doing it in, in kind of a loving and meaningful way is certainly a talent that yeah. uh, we all should have. Yeah. Yeah. We would all be much better off if we all had that talent. That's for sure. I yeah. think people with that talent are successful. <laughs> they, whatever their chosen field, they end up succeeding in that field. For sure, for sure. Well, final, final question. Where can folks find you at? My website's www.rdanish.com. Uh, my podcast on there. I've got a bunch of YouTube videos on there as well on specific communication practices. And there's links to my books and stuff on, on that website. Title of the podcast? And now we're talking. Now we're talking. Great title, yeah. And any books coming out soon? <laughs> not soon, not too soon. Uh, <laughs> I've a book be called What Effect Have I Had and another book called Beyond Civility that, that came out in the last couple of years. 
Uh, they took all my time and the pandemic has meant much less productivity for me lately. So <laughs> it's all good. You've heard plenty. So definitely check those out. Well, Rob, I really appreciate this. It's been awesome. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot. As I mentioned, I love whenever we can put research and frameworks around some of the topics that we talk about. It's interesting because they're academically based, right? So they're rigorous in that way, but they're also very simple and easy to apply, I think. And I yeah. think those, those are the keys of good frameworks. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for having me, Craig. It was awesome. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the Communication Nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.